What a month. You've been so gracious. Many of you have received emails and cards. Um, this last month has been a lot of fun for me. I basically set up a little office here in the back corner. And so uh, it's been fun to sort of be here more regularly with you uh, for the month of July. July has been, July's been a crazy month. I mean, just for the world. Um, I mean, I, there's always stuff going on and it just seems like maybe it's our access to media and how much is happening uh, just a little bit of July in review. I was looking up some things this week, just thinking, since I've been teaching parables this, this summer here for this month, what's happened in our world um, that is just, it's been happening? We've had since, I remember that first week, um, just processing through uh, the terror in Orlando, and then the senseless murders in Minnesota and Baton Rouge, and then Dallas, and recently Nice and Munich. It's just been a really uh, lamenting July in many ways. There's been some other moments this month that have just been like fascinatingly bizarre. Portugal won the Euro 2016. Uh, Russia was banned from the Olympics. Uh, yet another Born Identity was released. Uh, Radiohead played at Madison Square Garden. And let's not forget about two, I think, unforgettable political conventions. Uh, we found out that Scott Baio is still alive. We found that out. Um, <laughs> And not to politicize, because that's not what I'm about, and that's not what I do here, but the spouses alone of the candidates gave us some great laughs. I mean, we had one spouse who pirated a speech, and the other spouse, who we found out has a hidden obsession with balloons. I mean, just this sort of hilarious, sort of conventional thing happening. Um, And so this final Sunday in July, uh, we wrap this sort of four-week dive into some of the parables that Jesus told that he gave us these stories about the kingdom of God, and they were designed in such a way that instead of giving us factual data, that Jesus gives us an arc of a narrative. And he puts the kingdom of God, which is often difficult to even talk about on this side of eternity, he puts them in the context of stories that we would, over the course of our life, chew on them, and that they would begin to emerge in certain situations that they would come up and be recalled. Uh, So let me read this text, and then we'll get going This morning, Luke 15, just three verses. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? You can already see just the word picture here. It's so much more interesting than facts, right? When she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I'd lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, let me begin by asking you a very simple question. And it goes something like this. Where were you on the evening of September 28th, 2001? September 28th, 2001. I want to suggest that this was one of the greatest moments in cinematic history on that evening. Now, that was the same year that The Fellowship of the Ring was released, but that's not the film I'm referring to. Uh, also released that year was Amelie and A Beautiful Mind and Ocean's Eleven. For the few of you in this room who would appreciate this, the Royal Tenenbaums. And of course, the Ben Affleck heartbreaker, Pearl Harbor. Most of us trying to forget that one. But none of us, none of those, I think, captured one of, if not the greatest moment in cinematic history. Are you ready for it? Here it is. 
I'm referring to one of the most underrated films in human history, Zoolander, right? Now, in this particular scene, there's a particular scene in the film where the male model, Derek Zoolander, uh, played by Ben Stiller, he's up for the, the male model of the year slash actor for his fourth year straight against his really, 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 really good-looking nemesis, Hansel, played by Owen William Wilson. And I could describe it, but I mean, wouldn't you rather see it, right? So let's just take a little look. And the award goes to... Hansel. Thank you, Lenny. Wow. You know, a lot of people said winning this award four years in a row couldn't happen. Well, I guess I should. incredible moment and, and maybe maybe I embellished a little bit maybe this isn't the greatest moment in cinematic history maybe that's debatable but I think I think it suffices to serve the point Derek in this scene is so self-directed so self-interested that he fails to hear what's really being said and although this this scene I think is an extreme way to make a point I think we do the same kind of thing all the time and I think the point is this, when we come to Scripture, specifically this text we've been looking at as Jesus is really hinting at, I think all too often, I know this is, this is my case, um, we read Scripture first and foremost to see what it says about us, to see what it says about me, where I am the subject. And so I come to the text with myself in the center of the story you know, and I ask questions like whether I like that text or not, or whether I agree with it, or whether it works for me. Like these sorts of conversations come up in me, and I'll hear them all the time as we talk about the text of whether someone liked the text or whether someone agreed with it. And there's a word for this kind of disposition when it's the center question every time that we approach the text or every time we approach spirituality or even other, all these other parts of our life too. And, and the word for this kind of disposition is a long word, and it's the word anthropocentric. It's where we get the word anthropology. It's this idea of human-centered, of self-centered. And now to be sure, I think the scripture is a conversation inviting us to see ourselves in the text to a large degree. But the stories and the story that the scripture wants to tell is first and foremost about a leading actor called God. And what it does is it shifts our perspective. It shifts the kind of first foot that we lean in from being an anthropocentric perspective to what's called a theocentric perspective. In other words, no longer is the first step into the pool of understanding the text about what it says about me, but really what the scriptures are about are a tale of who this God really is and what this God is up to. And then secondarily, how we fit into that plot. So it's a very different way of organizing the way in which we approach the text. 
There's a pastor named Scott Bader Sy who said some interesting things about this that I find, well, interesting. He says this, Earlier in Luke, Jesus says, Search and you will find. And one might be tempted to read these parables as emphasizing the same point, that we are saved by finding what we seek. We might imagine ourselves as a woman looking for a coin. So you have this image where, where we imagine ourselves being this woman, that Jesus is telling the story. So we begin to think with that first, that first foot, we begin to think, okay, great, I'm the woman, I'm looking for truth, I'm looking for meaning. What does it mean to find something? I wanna find what I'm looking for. That we might imagine ourselves as a woman looking for a coin. And maybe that's what Jesus wants to talk about. But he goes on to say, we might imagine that these parables encourage our seeking so that we may find what we have lost. The parables, in fact, do something else. Now, here's where things turn, right? Here's where you have this sort of shift. They make us not the searchers, but the lost object. Lost not in the sense of not knowing where we are, though that may be part of it, but in the sense of having become the object of another search. That is, we are lost to someone who is, we are assured, seeking us. Do you understand the difference in this text if your first foot into this is I am the woman looking for something versus what if this text is actually about a God who is in relentless pursuit of what has been lost? I think that's the first place we have to come to try to understand this text, that Jesus tells this parable concerning the kingdom of God in order to invite us to understand what the king of this kingdom is really like. And I know, I suspect that we have a lot of different perceptions of who this mysterious God is. And there's a lot of competing ideas about who this God is, even in this room. Let's go back to this text, Luke 15. If you'll go back to this text on the slide so that we can see just these three verses again. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sentence, excuse me, over one sinner who, sinner who repents. So let me cut right to the chase. Here's the meaning of this parable. In the words of Joseph Fitzmaier, who's a Jesuit priest, he says, if a woman will expend herself until she finds something lost and rejoice when she finds it. Will not God much more expend God's self and rejoice at the finding of lost people? I think what Jesus is wanting to do first and foremost with this story is to unfold and reveal the vast, expansive heart of God about creation. And so there's two brief things I want to talk about this morning. The first is this. I want to talk about God's pursuit of the world. And then I want to talk about God's pursuit of you. And that's how I want to close these four weeks of digging into these parables. Another way to say it, I think, is I want to talk about God's relentless pursuit of our outer world, of this sort of world that we have all these sorts of opinions about. And then I want to talk about God's pursuit of your personal inner world. So I want to talk about the outer world at large, and then I want to talk about your inner world briefly at the end. So let's begin with the outer world. The first thing that's important about the lost coin is that it is inanimate. I think we should pick up on that and pay attention to it. In other words, it has no agency on its own to call out. It has no power. 
It has nothing within itself that actually can say, hey, I'm lost here. Someone please come find me. It has none of that going on for it. It's unable to call out. It's entirely dependent on the diligent search of the woman in the light of her lamp. I think it was Soren Kierkegaard who said something like, life can only be understood backward, but it has to be lived forward. Think about this for a second. When I think about my story, and when I think about this parable of God searching and trying to find me, and me being lost and not even knowing it, when I look backward at my own story coming to faith and waking up to God, when I think about that, I've, I've understood it differently than I used to. Now that I have some distance from it, it's been, gosh, 15, 16 years now since I feel like I began to wake up to reality. Um, I think what I would say about it is, looking backward, what I can see now is that my faith isn't so much that I found God, which I believed happened at the time. I think more than that, I think it's that I've realized that God found me when I wasn't even looking. I believed in the moment that somehow I was waking up, I was doing it on my own, I was advancing toward God and all of a sudden I surrendered to God and I was sort of in control of this moment and I decided to do that. And, and I, I don't think that's wrong necessarily, but I think I've begun to understand just how significantly um, sort of spiritually like dead I was, sort of comatose to reality, living into illusion, thinking that was reality, realizing that I was so far gone in that realm that I, I wasn't even thinking about God or what it meant to sort of wake up to realities that are true and beautiful and eternal rather than living for what's fleeting and ephemeral and passing. I think what this parable reminds me of is the God that we've only just begun to pursue turns out to be the same God who's pursued us since we were in the womb, which, by the way, we couldn't call out even then. Looking at Julie, pregnant, so beautiful to watch her sing, I, and, and just seeing this child in her womb that is not even audible yet, and yet God is already in pursuit of that child living in her womb. It's incredible. This text, verse 8, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully, until she finds it. Now let's talk about three words. Let's talk about lighting and let's talk about sweeping and let's talk about searching because you can find that in this text. And I want to illustrate it with the, the artist James Tussaud. Anyone familiar with Tussaud? Wonderful, wonderful artist. And uh, this is a fascinating sort of moment. If you'll bring these lights down just for a second, I want to give like the full sort of understanding, the full visual of this text just so we can see it uh, as clearly as possible. The thing about this text for me, or excuse me, this, this painting for me, is, is I look at this woman who is on the floor as Tussauds trying to capture this moment on a canvas. And I think about lighting and sweeping and searching. And when I look at this woman, what, what captured me when I watched this is how humbling that must have been. Face on the ground, in the dust, of the house, reaching under what probably hasn't been cleaned in months or years, trying to search for this coin. Something that you would think, gosh, don't you have a, you have a bunch of other coins? Why would you go to all this trouble? Aren't you satisfied? 
with the coins you already have. And I think it's humbling to light and sweep and search. It's a humbling maneuver. My daughter has this, um, this favorite companion uh, called Baby Duck. This is Baby Duck. Aw. It's not real, people. It's, it's, it's not even animate. Baby Duck is her toy of choice. In fact, ducks in general are like preeminent in the animal kingdom for her. She's got like green duck and red duck. I mean, her bathtub is just, it's just full of ducks. And it's, it's, it's incredible. It's an amazing, amazing zoo, every bath. But when she gets out, like this is, of all of her animals, this is the one. This is the one that is at the top. Her notion of the kingdom of heaven is a room full of ducks. Like that's my daughter's understanding. She cannot sleep without this duck. She takes it everywhere. And so a few, a few months back, we were at this diner in New York and um, diners are dirty. <laughs> and she dropped it. And all of a sudden, a crisis happened over pancakes of like, where is baby duck? Where is baby duck gone? And I'm looking around and I, can't, I cannot see baby duck anywhere, right? And somehow the duck managed to like slip its way underneath the bench. And I don't know when you were last in a New York City diner. Those haven't been cleaned in a while, right? We're talking maybe epochs, right? So here I am. She's going crazy. We got pancake and syrup all over the place. And I am on my knees in a New York diner in search for baby duck. And it's one of these moments that I'm having that I just, it occurred to me how humiliating it was to be on the floor and search for something seemingly insignificant. Yet, the thing that brought me joy and made it worthwhile was because baby duck is a part of her flourishing at this moment in life. Now, if that happens when she's 16, that's weird. And so to find baby duck was like a joy. And it assuaged all of the humiliation of being on my knees in the center of the city in this dingy diner. I want you to listen to this passage. Hebrews 12, the Hebrews writer is trying to communicate the same thing. saying, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of joy that was set before him endured the cross, the most humiliating death in human history, disregarding its shame. Do you hear that? That's, that's like the cosmic level of God on a diner floor in search of baby duck. It's even worse than that. It's even lower than that. And has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. What this text means in light of this parable is that the lighting and the sweeping and the searching of God to find what was lost, namely you and me, was the most humble maneuver in human history. I don't know what your perception of God is, but I can tell you this. God is humble. That's what this text tells us preeminently above everything else. Against all odds, God humbly, relentlessly pursues this world, including you. There's this interesting thing called the Engel scale. If you'll bring that up, I just want to walk through this. This is a fascinating thing. Uh, some of you, this will connect with a lot. Others of you, not so much. Um, I will say, 
one of the things I would encourage you to do is perhaps find maybe where you are on this scale. And it's not so mutually exclusive that maybe you're only in one place, but um, I will say this will maybe open some things up. Let's just, this is, the Ingle scale has been used to talk about like what creates a plausible pathway to take Jesus seriously, right? Like some of you have said, I take Jesus seriously. I've surrendered to Christ. Christ is Messiah to me. Others of you would say, I'm somewhere on the journey. Others of you would say, I'm nowhere on the journey. I'm actually agnostic or I'm atheist. I don't even think we could ever have that sort of knowledge, uh, even if that were true. But I'm here nonetheless, and I'm interested. So I guess let's have this conversation. I want you to imagine, like at the bottom here, you have no awareness of God. Maybe that's where you were at some place in your life, in your journey. Maybe that's where you are now. And then you move to this sort of, maybe you're at a place in your life, maybe you have some awareness of God. That if that's true, I want to know if that's true. Tell me a little bit more. Maybe I could take that seriously. And then you kind of have these steps that you move up of contact with Christians, interest in Jesus, investigating Jesus. You grasp the truth about Jesus. Maybe you understand implications of the truth about Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't even know what this Christian thing is all about. Someone just dragged me here and I'm actually like beginning to be interested in something that forever I didn't take seriously whatsoever. And maybe some of you at a place of saying, I not only understand the implications of the Christian faith, I actually want to start living into them. I want to start believing that because what was happening in my life before, before this moment isn't working for me anymore. It's no longer leading me to flourishing. It's actually creating anxiety in my life. And if truth is real and it's available, I'm interested to know what that is. Some of you are at a place of accepting the implications of becoming Christians, which can be vocational suicide, which can be social suicide which can lead to familial loss, depending on what kind of family you were raised in. All of these sorts of things. Others of you have hit a place where you've actually made a decision to surrender to Jesus, to say, I, I have no control. I, I've begun to see that in my own achievement, I cannot actually gain the identity that I thought I could by achieving things. It actually comes through grace. And God loves me. And I need to trust that. I need to live into that. Others of you are at a place maybe where you're gaining confidence in this decision or experiencing life change and you're beginning to learn the basics of the faith. You're beginning to learn disciplines where you spiritually bring yourself to the text and walk this out in community where you begin to actually share your faith with others and you begin to see ongoing growth, etc., etc. There's many other things we could put in this, but it's basically a plausibility structure that says somewhere in our journey, we are all somewhere on this scale. And, and it's not necessarily even a hierarchy scale that, oh, you're so enlightened because you're here and you're not because you're here. I think what I'm interested in is this question. Where does God pursue us? Where would you mark in this scale? Okay, it's there that God pursues us. It's there that God pursued me. It's at that step. It's at that stage. I think the question I would ask this morning is simply this. Where doesn't God pursue us? I want to suggest that there has not been one breath of your life, one moment, where God ceases to relentlessly pursue you. That every step along the way. Whether you feel it or not, feelings are not the sine qua non. They're not the essential ingredient of what truth actually always is. They're a great accompaniment, but they're not the arbiter of what is true and what is false. Even if you didn't feel it, 
I want to suggest that God has been radically pursuing you since you were in the womb, longing for you to wake up. Whatever season you're in, I would simply say this this morning. God is speaking something through it. It doesn't always mean he was the architect of any given moment in terms of whether you're going through tragedy or triumph or wherever you are in that, but God is always speaking through circumstances, longing to wake us up to more. Maybe you feel like you're at a higher stage on that scale, but there's more. There's more presence. There's more revelation. There's more knowledge. There's more encounter that God's constantly trying to wake us up. And I think the question is, are you listening? Think about the season that you're in in your life right now. Are you listening to your life? Whatever you're going through, it's all the ingredients of what God uses to say, here I am, and this is where I'm leading you to go. So what's interesting is when that which was lost is found, what I find interesting is this. If we're going to take this parable seriously and God is this woman, God is anything but casual about you waking up. Listen, listen what happens. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. The first wedding I did, I was 22. And I was invited to officiate this, um, this wedding in Tampa, Florida. Poor souls, I was so young. I didn't know what I was doing. And we go through the counseling thing. I'm, I'm not even married, like whatever. And, uh, and so <laughs> we get to this, it's an outdoor wedding. And I'll never forget, I'm sitting outside with him. People are gathering, got his groomsmen already lined up. Bridesmaids start coming down. He's standing next to me. I'm looking at her coming down, which by the way, to be on an officiant side of the table of a wedding is magic. To see the face of the bride coming toward so many spiritual things happening for me about the church being restored to Christ. It's incredible. So she's coming down to meet him. And she's like cool as a cucumber. Like, yeah, this is it. This is my moment. This is good. This is what I've been waiting for. I've been waiting for this for the months. And here I am. And it's good. Hey, good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, yeah. That's her moment coming down. And I look to him and he's bawling. He has lost it. He cannot control himself emotionally, just heaving. And we often have this understanding that the bride is weeping and, you know, the groom is just stoic and, yeah, I thought this would happen. This is good. This is fine. It's going to work for me, right? And I had this moment where I realized, oh God, how I've robbed you of emotions. How I've robbed you of the way you feel about the world that I've assumed that you're this stoic, transcendent God who cannot be moved and that I'm always crying coming to you. But in fact, we have this emotional God who is saying, I long for the world. I long for you. I'm willing to get on my face in the dirt to find what was lost. And when I find it, I am charismatic. I am not stoic. I lose it because I'm so excited about what I found. She says, rejoice with me for I found the coin that I have lost. That little insignificant coin, I found it and now I'm gonna throw a party that's gonna cost way more than the coin that I just found. It's incredible. 
Scott Bader Sy says, salvation consists not exclusively in rescue, but in being drawn into the eternal celebration. It seems we have this God who really wants us to party with him. That that's what's happening in the kingdom of God. And I want to close with this really briefly. Looking more now, not just to the outer world of God drawing in creation to God's self, but looking at your inner world. Not just the outer world of waking up to Jesus, but the inner world, the inner life. And I want to take some liberties here with this text because I, I, I wouldn't say with like a high level of certainty that this is what Jesus meant here. But I would say there's like some parenthetical asides that we can make some inferences about and say, oh, that's interesting. We should get curious about this. I think when it comes to this woman finding this coin, I think we would say this and, and think about the, the idea of her lighting and, and following, like having to light a path to find something, right? I think when it comes to our inner world, Especially if you'll pull up that Ingle scale slide one more time. Um, uh, yes. Now, I would imagine for those of you who are at this orange place or have, have moved beyond that into saying, I follow Jesus. Jesus is my Messiah. Let me just, let me just close by speaking to you for a moment. Um, I want to talk about your inner world. Because the sum of the Christian faith isn't to get to surrender and then, and then stop. It's about moving even beyond that into vibrancy and to moving beyond that into formation into the ways of Jesus. Like that's the fullness of the human experience. And it's paradoxical. You wouldn't sort of reason it out. But when you live it, you realize it brings so much more joy than anything else you can attain. Um, I want to talk to you for a moment because I want to assume that there are parts of you that still remain hidden. Right? So there's this aspect of, yes, I've been found I've waken up, but yet, yet, there's parts of my life that still remain dark and undiscovered and concealed. And I do a lot of sort of management to keep those things hidden from God, hidden from others, and really in many ways, hidden from myself. That there are those places in each of us where we sort of remain closed to the full embrace of God because that could be costly or that could be humiliating or that could be embarrassing. And so I'll just pretend that's not there. I follow Christ and yet there's a fraction of the pie chart of my soul that I sort of keep in the dark. I dug up this prayer a few weeks ago that has just been stirring my soul. And it reads this. And I'll just let this speak for itself in close. Merciful God, your desire... By the way, one of the reasons... Take that off for just a second. Um, one of the reasons I love old prayers is because these are the prayers of like men and women in their 80s who have sort of lived the faith and have something much more to say to the rest of us that aren't octogenarians who have sort of lived out a long stream of following Jesus and saying, at the end of my life, that's why I read the Psalms, because the Psalms teach me to pray. I'm not like very good at praying. I don't know if you agree with that in your life. I've learned like, learn to pray the Psalms, AJ, because those are the prayers of the veterans. And when you learn to pray those prayers, you'll learn how to really pray. And then all of a sudden, over the course of your life, you'll become good at prayer. 
So don't be innovative, AJ. Like, follow the Psalms. And through that, you'll begin to understand how to pray in your life. So I like digging up old prayers because they have a cadence to them and a poetry and a sense of wisdom that's so much better than sometimes the way I pray. And don't get me wrong, I pray spontaneously. But I love to dig up old prayers and to say, oh, oh my goodness, that's so much more articulate than anything I could have said. And so that's why it meant so much to me when I found this prayer a few weeks ago that really articulated my soul in ways I don't feel like I'm competent enough yet to articulate myself. And it says this, Merciful God, your desire to bring us into your kingdom is so great that you seek us in the places of our ignorance. And here's the part that really just cut me. In the forgotten corners where we hide in despair. Gather us into your loving embrace and pour upon us your wise and holy spirit so that we may become faithful servants in whom you rejoice with all the company of heaven. Amen. And I read this and felt like, oh my word, that's it. I'm at a place where I follow Christ. I'm surrendered to Jesus most of the time. And yet I, I, do, I do know that there are these hidden chambers in my soul that need to be further awoken and illuminated. So God, I don't even know what those are. Would you show me what those are in my inner life? Because I would hate to think that Christianity is about managing something. Surely it's about flourishing. And so I would just say an application for you, for your inner world. I would simply ask you this question to reflect on. Where are you refusing to give God more ground in your life? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's emotions, or maybe it has to do with something you're trying to control or a place in your life where there's a lot of fear associated. And I would simply encourage you with this. God, whatever that is, God is not running from that. God is actually longing to pursue that in you and to restore whatever it is that you feel like you need to keep concealed. And God wants to meet you in that place. And the second, not the inner world, but let's just close by the outer world. For some of you, you're at this place where you're not yet at a place of making a decision to follow Jesus. And I love Renaissance because it's a place of freedom to explore. But I will say, eventually in your life, you should try to land somewhere. Talked about these tea bags a few weeks ago of just taking your tea bag and going from cup to cup to cup. It leaves a life of dilution. Whatever you believe, at some point you need to find a place where you stand in it and surrender to it and commit to it. And I will tell you that my walk with Jesus, and many of you that would say the same, I can't imagine. I can't imagine, and I'm not saying, I'm not here to, to debate or whatever, I'm just saying that I have found so much fulfillment in the ways of Jesus, which are so par paradoxical to how we're called to live in this world. And I would simply challenge you with this. Would you, would you consider trusting in God's desire to bring you into the family of faith? Would you simply trust that this is actually what Jesus came to accomplish? as Mike was saying, Michael was saying earlier, leading music, that this is actually what God is up to, is enfolding you into a greater story that will never end. And because of Jesus, we have access to that. So if this is you, I want to pose a question for serious considera consideration. 
If it is true that God is love and that God is relentlessly pursuing the world for the purpose of flourishing, what could possibly be worth saying no to this amazing God? If you're at that place this morning and it's just time, God has been knocking at the door of your heart for what seems like days or weeks or months or years. The beautiful thing about that is sitting with someone and saying, pray with me, it's time. I've been running, I've been managing, and it is time to start this journey that's going to lead me into my future. And it's gonna require something, I'm sure, but I'm ready, I don't want to say no anymore or wait. And that's you, I just wanna encourage you to talk to Clay, talk to Michael, seek more about what it means to surrender to this amazing God. More than anything, I just want to pray over you as a congregation. I believe your best days as a church are in front of you. And as I said, I think last week or the week before, I would challenge all of you to commit to the spiritual discipline of staying and being a part of writing the future story of this church as you move forward and as you long to see other elements added and pastors and other people such as yourself to advance the kingdom of God in this area of, of New Jersey. Just really long for you. So let me pray over you and say thank you for your warmth and embrace and generosity toward me in these last few weeks and really these last few years. So let's pray together. God, I thank you for my friends in this room and for your longing and concern and hope for this community. I pray over them, God, that truly that their best days are in front of them as the people of God, as a family, and that you would call them to radical, radical hospitality. You would call them to radical generosity and you would call them to vulnerable love with one another. So I pray your spirit would flow in this place and would lead them as they journey in life in this city. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for being here. See ya.